Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We are digging into those wonderful Advent texts for year B, and um, we've decided to focus on Isaiah. So today, Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 through 11. Alan, let's just dig right in. Let's, I think we first have to place this into the context of the book of Isaiah. Right. I think that's, that's crucial with a book like Isaiah, um, uh, because even as early as the first century AD, Jewish scholars recognized that Isaiah was a compilation. And so um, there, are, uh, there are some scholars, there are a vast minority who will say that no, Isaiah is one book written by one prophet, but it's very likely that that's not the case. So in this context, we're in the context of what's called Second Isaiah, and um, that usually refers to Isaiah 40 through 54. Some people extended to, to chapter 66, and there's a debate about that. But um, the, the distinguishing factor about this uh, section of Isaiah is that it looks forward to redemption promised by God, and that's different from 1st Isaiah. 1st Isaiah is warning of impending judgment and exile. 2nd uh, Isaiah um, it seems to be making this promise of redemption to a people perhaps already long in exile. And so uh, that's, that's where we start. I think we also need to understand what, what exile meant for the people of Israel. Um, they had lost pretty much everything that defined their lives, not only their homes and land and their family, but to some extent, even their God, because they believed that deities were tied to a place. Right, and the temple's been destroyed, and they've been kicked out of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. so absolutely. We, we see this with Ezekiel, because you know Ezekiel is shocked that God appears to him by the river Kibar in Babylon. He's not expecting that at all. And the people thought God was way away in some place in, in uh, Palestine. You know, they didn't think of him as being omnipresent or, or with them in, in Babylon. So they had lost everything, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think what's interesting about that, and I, maybe we should put out, at least historically, I think they believe this probably was written in the exilic period. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to date most parts of Isaiah (laughs) because um, it really is a compilation of different messages. And that's true for first Isaiah, it's true for second Isaiah, it's true for third Isaiah. So it's it's incredibly difficult to really date it with any precision, but it seems to generally come from the time of exile when Israel is in Babylon and, and they have not yet um, been released. They, they, are, they are languishing in exile. And so the message of Second Isaiah is one of hope. You know, when you are talking about this being written at different times, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, a few people saying, well, that's, you know, it's, it's the name is Isaiah. It's got to be the same author, which is not true. And I, I, one of the, your specialties as a language expert is to maybe tell them 
What in the language tells us, or in the writing tells us, that this is indeed a compilation? Well, part of it's just the setting. As I said, in 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 First Isaiah, we see the main message of the prophet to the people is uh, one of impending judgment for their um, refusal to follow God's ways. Um, and and it's interesting because the chief nemesis in 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 First Isaiah is the Assyrian kingdom. We get to Second Isaiah. And the message shifts completely. Um, it's talking about um, a promise of redemption to a people who are who are languishing. Uh, it appears that they've already been in exile so for a, a whole long time. Different historical reality. A whole different historical reality. About. And the chief nemesis is no longer Assyria. They're not on the scene any right. longer. They're it's gone. Ba- it's Babylon. Right. Um, some of it has to do with other more detailed uh, examinations of the language of the book, but. Um, it's it's I mean it's just the nature of Isaiah. If you if you ever just sat down and tried to read Isaiah straight through, if you had a good translation that that broke it into poetic paragraphs, you would see it's just it just seems like it's it's a string of different prophetic messages that are that are kind of strung together. And and there is kind of a rhyme to it. There is kind of a reason rationale behind the way they're organized. But if you sat down and you just read through Isaiah, you would recognize it right off the bat if you're paying attention because it's just it it's hard to miss so when i was preparing for this i i discovered that there are scholars out there that actually think you should just divide second isaiah from the whole rest of the book does it belong together yes i think they do belong together um and i don't think that puts me in a minority uh i think there is a, a significant number of uh, biblical scholars who who would agree with that. Um, the way I see it is that First Isaiah reflects. I, I think the core of First Isaiah reflects perhaps the preaching of the prophet of Isaiah. Um, perhaps it was put together at a later date, as even the Jewish scholars of the first century believed. Um, Second Isaiah um, seems to build on some themes. In First Isaiah, there are some common themes in First Isaiah, like the contrast between God and the false gods, um, and um, but it sh- takes the message of First Isaiah and shifts it more toward the message of hope. And then Third Isaiah uh, builds again on on some of these themes, I think, uh, and and um, addresses the people who have returned from exile and who are struggling with the fact that their redemption has not lived up to the hopes that were raised, the expectations that were raised by the promise of second Isaiah. So it's a, I think, I think you can find some continuity there. There's a whole lot of uniqueness and different ways that each of these three segments go. Um, So we wouldn't want to downplay that by any means. Very good. So let's kind of dig now into the, this particular text and, you know, my first impression is it's just so beautiful how it starts out. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says you're a God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. I mean, this is these are wonderful words. They are. Um, and but yet, I don't know if it's obvious to us how we how we bring this into a, a an Advent text. So maybe you can just dig into this for us. Well, let's yeah, let's start with the theme of the passage, um, if that's okay. Um, it seems pretty clear that the theme of the passage is speaking the message of God. So you have this command in verse 2, speak, literally speak to the heart of Jerusalem, or speak words of comfort to Jerusalem. 
you have the statement about the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. You have um, 40 verse 5, the mouth of the Lord is spoken, which we'll come back to because that's a very important uh, phrase in the Hebrew prophets. Uh, and then the herald Zion is to lift up your voice. And, and, and um, herald Zion and herald um, Jerusalem are called a mabesereth, which is basically a proclaimer of good news. So it seems like, again, right off the bat, in, in the beginning of first, uh, Second Isaiah, you've got, we've got the gospel according to Second Isaiah, and it's, it's a very distinct shift from the theme of the previous mm-hmm. chapters. Um, yeah. It, wonderful. I mean, yeah, the, the shift I think is pretty obvious when even to the to someone that is not familiar with it. I mean, mm-hmm. it it really comes in, and it I does. indeed I I think this is why it's being selected. Um, one of the things that you alluded to is there seems to be some um, allegory in this. I, I, am I understanding that correctly, or is? Um, uh, well, I mean, I mean, they they you know, it's interesting because. The message is to be addressed to Zion, but then is Zion also to be the herald? You know, some people have understood it differently. Is it a herald to Zion? Is it a proclaimer of good news to Zion? Or is Zion the proclaimer of good news to the other nations? And you could make a case for both in Second Isaiah. So it's a bit ambiguous there. Okay. I would say there's some ambiguity there in the reference. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I started well, one of the you know, one of the references I saw, I guess, was that for example, this this wonderful part about the grass and the flowers. Oh yeah, is that humanity? Yeah, yeah, and we'll come to we'll come to that in okay. a moment. Yeah, okay. um, I, I think um, I'd like to uh, go back to the theme of the message of God because the the message is one of comfort, obviously, and pardon for sins, the coming of the glory of the Lord, which will be revealed to all flesh, and the best part, the part that I like best, is the last verse. He will feed his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Now, there are some other very intimate portraits of God in the Bible. I find it interesting. I'm, I'm, I call to mind that you know many scholars have commented on the intimacy with which Jesus addressed God, and, and, and that, was being, that is being unusual. Here, I think we have a portrait of God the shepherd who's one of the most Im, intimate images of God that I can think of in the Bible. And, you know, what first comes to mind as you're saying that is just the assumption that this Old Testament God Mm-hmm. It's always harsh. Mm-hmm. And here is this image of mm-hmm. this gentle, this shepherd. He's going to carry the lambs in his arms. Exactly. He's going to carry them in his bosom or on his lap is the idea. Mm-hmm. We would use that term. Sitting, they'll be sitting on his lap, you know. Right, right. <laughs> so what a, what, a, what, a lovely, what a lovely image. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a beautiful image, I think. And yet, at the same time, as you point out, there is this other aspect of the message, and that is that all people are grass, mm-hmm. and their constancy is like the flower of the field. Now, you know, I think those of us who've read the New Testament have heard those words so many times, you know, it's hard for us to think of it without um, a sort of a preconceived understanding. If we, if we think about it, you know, Isaiah, second Isaiah starts off with this message of just really bold comfort mm-hmm. for the people who have been who have suffered and then all of a sudden he comes back and says people are grass 
and they wither and fade like grass. And so it's a little bit strange that it's in there. But um, I, think there's, I think there's a logic to that as well. I was going to say, I think there's definitely a logic to that as well. Um, yeah, and, and I think the logic is found is found in the phrase, you know, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And, and the word of our God that will stand forever in Second Isaiah is the word of promise of redemption. Exactly, to all people. Well, first and foremost, to the exiles. To the exiles. But... In Second Isaiah, it is extended to other nations. Right. You know, yeah, in Second yeah, yeah, Isaiah, yeah. we have the the passage uh, where it's I believe it's Isaiah forty six, where 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 um, the, God addresses the servant and says, "It's too small a thing for you to only proclaim salvation to my people. You know, you shall be you shall be a light for the world. You know." And so initially it's, it's for the exiles, but, but that promise of redemption is expanded definitely to, the whole, to all the nations. Yeah, at least that's, that's how I've always understood it is, yes, it's got this kind of this double fold, like you just talked about, to the exiles, but yes, that mm-hmm. it's also broader than mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all people are grass. Yeah. All people um, well, and all I think people are part of the creation. And I think you know, if you if you think about the context of Israel in exile, you know, th- they probably pinned their hopes on certain individuals at certain times. Um, uh, we know from Jeremiah, for example, that there were prophets in Babylon who were telling the people to to get ready because they were gonna they were about to be set free. And he writes to them and says, uh, "No, no, not quite. You know, build houses." plant fields, give your sons and daughters in marriage, you know, have children, have grandchildren. Mm-hmm. You're going to be there a while. You're going to be there. You're <laughs> going to be there. You've got to, you've got to continue to live that God's, I think, I think there's a sense of that God's world, God's um, overarching plan for humanity is bigger than, than mm, your little, that's right. your little existence. Sure. <laughs> but, but part of it too is, is I think that, um, that, he, he, you know, this whole, this focus on the word of our God, again, it comes back to the message, you know, the word of our God will stand forever. And, and the idea is your hopes in some of these human prophets or deliverers or so-called or would-be deliverers may have been dashed, but you can set your hope on the word of our God. You can set your hope on this promise that God will redeem you because this word will stand forever and it will not uh, it will not disappoint. I, you know, I'm th- I think of even in Isaiah 55, you know, you have the idea that God's word does not come back without producing its fruit. You know, it's going to do its work. And um, we can talk about how well it did that and then the fulfillment of it. <laughs> but I think the point of this is, I think the focus of this is, you know, perhaps already anticipating some objections on the part of the audience you know yeah we've heard this before we've heard all of this before why should we believe it now and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know um second isaiah is very very strong on um you know the mouth of the lord has spoken and this is a phrase that's used in uh, the prophetic books of the hebrew bible that's almost something of a guarantee that what god promises will come to pass now, you know, it's, I think it's important for us to hang on to that understanding of God's promise, especially in Isaiah, because it's so important. But 
our ability to see that fulfillment is another question that we should probably take up, you know, I, because it's, it's, you know, we, I don't know that we're always able to see that fulfillment. I, well, and, and neither were they, right? Right. So I think that's, I think that's what the amazing nature of this is. And I think I'm jumping probably way too far ahead, but in, in our, in our contemporary world where we're impatient in particular, I think it's even harder. I think people just abandon God's hope altogether. Yeah. Um, well, and that's where I think this this fits into Advent. I you know, agree. Uh-huh. I think the idea of of redemption by God. God is coming. So we have an Advent here. God is coming to to restore His people. He is going to personally bring them out like a, a, a tender and gentle shepherd. Um, and um, so. I, mean, I think this is the connection with Advent. Basically, is is this hope? That, Absolutely, that, this hope. Yeah that, yeah, that God is going to do this. I agree, I agree. It's um so you know as as we're talking about this, um, I think this once now I hope everyone else has heard this as well. This has suddenly become a very rich text for Advent. Mm-hmm. It's it might be easy to overlook, but as we just dug into it here, this is um. <laughs> This isn't just, this is about all of God's promise. This is about the overarching space of God and redeeming. Well, and I would say that promise of redemption and that promise of comfort still remains valid today because the word of our God stands forever, right? Absolutely. That's why why this text, I think, is so, so perfect. Um, Mm -hmm. It takes us. It takes us beyond space and time. It mm-hmm. is. It is. It really goes on forever, and really, really, I think speaks to yeah. to um, God's wholeness of creation. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks. We're back, and uh, I'm going to talk with Christy about how the Reformers can help us here. So how do the Reformers help us to read Isaiah 41 through 11 as an Advent text? Sure, and of course, we talked last week about how um, this was not an Advent text, and the lectionary that they would have had available was all New Testament. Um, And it's really during the Reformation that we start this process of looking at full books of the Bible. Not everyone's even using a lectionary. And certainly, this isn't considered an Advent text. But what I thought was interesting um, when you you start looking at Calvin is how he he pulls this into this idea that this text has moved beyond being, if you will, an Old Testament text or just a Hebrew scripture text, but that it recognizes the full providence of God. Um, and he spends a lot of, of, of time and effort saying, this is different from before. And while he's not able to articulate a, a second Isaiah, he is able to say, this is Isaiah speaking in a new voice. This mm. is Isaiah that is, is separate from what became before. This is Isaiah that says, um, we're looking to this great future of God's hope and promise. Mm. Mm. So, Interesting, yeah. interesting. Well, um, so in terms of providence, you're talking about God's plan overall, Absolutely. including not just past and present, but futures. Right, Imp- right. Is important. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and think what's interesting when you say that past, past, present, and future is that reading Calvin, it had this kind of cyclical sense. It wasn't, mm. it wasn't really that Jesus just came, but kind of keeps coming. It really has mm. a sense of 
sorry, when Jesus comes, you're not all going to be in this perfect state. You're still going to be sinners. Mm-hmm. And you still are going to have to be living into God's grace always. Mm. Much more cyclical than I think maybe a lot of modern Christians assume. You know, especially the born again movements are going to be mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm born again. I'm saved. I don't have to do anything. Right. Um, Once saved, always I'm saved. Always saved. And he's like, this is a constant response of sinful humanity. And he saw it. Um, in in the the time of Isaiah and with these with these Jewish exiles, but then he also sees it into the present. Time. I mean, he foreshadows it to our present. I think. Mm-hmm. So so the call to hope in God's redemption is one that is not just for Israel. It's not just one for Calvin's time. It's for all times. For all time. And yeah. I pulled this quote out of here, which is probably my favorite quote I've read to Calvin in the last couple months is. Nothing is more foolish than to rest satisfied with the present state, and uh, you know this came right out of um, right out of today's um, his his analysis of 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 this text from his commentary from on his Isaiah. commentary yeah. today, and and so I uh, that that really struck me as important for um, for this constant um, living into Christ for this constant this constant work that, mm. that we do in response to his coming. Yeah. yeah, that seems to resonate with his idea of justification as as something that's achieved, but sanctification is something that is ongoing and mm-hmm. we constantly live into God's exactly. grace. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So this fits into his Sounds like theology. sounds like he also he also says he he's also saying we constantly live into God's promise. Yes. I agree. I agree a hundred percent um that he says that. Wow. Um so I Again, while this wasn't initially an Advent text in their time, I think you can see how it sets the stage for using it as an Advent in our in our time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you know, I'd be curious to see, and I'm sure someone's done the work on this, but how the Revised Common Lectionary came together and who decided it should be in there. And I think the Calvinists may have had a little say in that. That the <laughs> well, and you know, I wonder. I mean, because this, you know, I mean, I think of um, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. I think of the 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 part from Handel's Messiah, you know, and I don't. My history on Handel on musicology isn't that great, but I'm, I guess Calvin probably predated Handel. But yeah, um, absolutely. It would seem that there was already a tradition of associating this with the coming of the Lord mm-hmm. and whether it's the coming of Christ or coming of God, you know, it's, it, I don't know how it was done, but you know, and, and there is a, this tradition of, of lessons and carols that goes back a long ways. I don't know how long that goes back, but it goes back a long ways into England and uh, maybe even before that into Germany and, and, and Switzerland. And, you know, that it seems like this text was one that was kind of embedded in that tradition from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. And I don't, now you have to remember not so much of Calvin's world because Calvin's at least, at least in the, in the service is only going to sing Psalms. Sure. I mean, this is sure. a Psalter kind of, kind of world. Um, but you're going to see some of that tra- back into the Lutheran tradition as, mm-hmm. as, as they start to be teaching doctrine through, through hymnody. Um, and so this, these pieces come out and you find that um, they come out with this, this broad idea of that the text all reflects on Christ. And, and I, th- I think we begin to see that in Luther, but we definitely see it kind of like with Calvin in general, we see it kind of completed in Calvin's work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think one of the other cool things that we do see in Calvin is this this kind of beginning um, textual criticism that we, oh, yeah. we pointed out before isn't really modern. And I think that's important. Um, and yet at the same time, you get that. Remember, it's our reformers that are first getting their hands on original languages, right? So our, our medieval church is using the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. That is considered to be the authentic text. And it was for a thousand years. Yeah. Exactly. And it's still, I mean, it was still considered to be perfect. I mean, it's, it's really until right. you get these Renaissance humanists who start studying this and they begin to get um, copies of the Greek text and they're noticing, huh, <laughs> there's some, there's some errors in here. Yeah. Not only was the Bible inspired, the translation, the Vulgate translation was considered to be inspired. Right? Exactly. Yeah. The uh, translation was considered, which, could take us on another, you know, completely <laughs> different space. That the King James is also like yeah, that. No, right. no, friends, no. But um, yeah, that it was, and I think this got they've determined there were like four hundred errors. You might know that better than I do, but Vulgate has all kinds of, of problems with it. So it's these reformers, um, of course, Erasmus um, from Rotterdam. Um, that probably was just in the New Testament. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> there may have been many, many more. You know, that he's really starting this process. of, And these texts are coming in really beginning with the Crusades. They're starting to make their way into um, into the, the Holy Roman Empire and into the, the humanist worlds are getting their hands on them and are starting to say, hey, I want to know what this says and this process of reading and then studying and learning these languages that, that come in with the time. So by the time you hit Luther and Calvin, you really have this, they are learning Greek and they're learning Hebrew and they're they're starting to look at different texts against each other and determine what's right and wrong and, and trying to analyze. And so, you know, Al and I were talking, he spends quite a bit of time in this commentary at the very beginning of the text. So in the revised, um, um, the new revised standard version is comfort. Oh, comfort. My people says your God. And this word says we have in our, in the present. Um, and he uses the Amar, uh, Yamar um, in Hebrew, and he says, look, this is, he says this should be future tense, and that this should be like will call. And we can argue whether that's right or wrong, but it really plays into his contextualization of this as being God working in the future for us. And he spends a lot of effort saying, this mm. isn't God of the past, this is God working now. Mm. And um, I think it's an interesting piece um, about some of his his work, and and I suppose that it, it's very debatable um, if that's a correct. Yeah, use. well, I mean, and, you know, it is a cal imperfect, and you know, if you know anything about the Hebrew verb system, you know that it's it's kind of funky in that <laughs> in that sometimes past tense means past tense, and sometimes it means everything else, and sometimes uh, not past tense means not past tense, and sometimes it means everything else. So it all depends on the context, but um, it is an it is an imperfect which typically is translated just in sort of in the present. It's a present, yeah. usually, uh, but he was but future, it, future, future. Um, it could, I mean, there are some imperfect, there, there are some, I'm, I'm, my understanding is there are some ways that the imperfect can be used in the future tense. Yeah, so. and that was his argument. And um, again, I think an, an interesting one, and certainly reflecting this this work they're starting to do in the, in the Hebrew. And important to remember, friends, that 
there's no Dead Sea Scrolls yet, right? We don't discover right. those till the 1940s. Nope. And, and All you have is the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text is what he has in front of him. And you wonder... And from the Leningrad Codex of the 10th century. Yeah, exactly. And you're wondering even at this point... Um, just how complete. I mean, there there are Jewish scholars. We talked many much earlier how how the, our humanists are really bringing in these folks into their discussions and and trying to get the best of the best scholars to help them with their interpretations of the of the Hebrew. But um, it's probably not as as sophisticated as it would be now. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to give them a little bit of grace for that. But I still think it's interesting. It's still impressive that Calvin was was in tune to some of those issues already. I think so. I think so as well. And and um, he spent some other time um, talking about Hesed that for him that should be interpreted as grace. And again, uh, he's that, following he's following the Septuagint translation. Uh, yeah, and and but he really he wanted to make sure that. Other, other people were translating that differently than grace, even using the Septuagint. He goes, mm. I want grace. I think that very much reflects Calvin mm. and Calvin's emphasis on grace. Mm. So I thought that was a kind of another really cool piece of Calvin in this. Um, but uh, anyway, at least um, I think for us coming from this, I mean, sometimes I think it's easier for us to kind of overlook the, the Reformation, but... Uh, one of the things that is important, I think, and I, I think we should come away with, is that I think it's the Reformation scholars, I think it's Calvin in particular, that really helps us begin to see this as an Advent text, mm. even if he hasn't articulated it yet, and um, that that history then has now brought us to a space now where we can argue, hey, this makes sense to be preaching now. And in fact, I think it. I think it's a really healthy space for us to go into. Well, it sounds like his. his he may. He may use a questionable means to get there by interpreting the the tense of a Hebrew verb and hanging it all on that. <laughs> but um, nevertheless, he kind of got to the same place we got to of 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 that this this promise is for all time and and not just for the people who were in exile in Babylon. Right. Right. Yeah. That's. Uh, We'll, we'll just get back together and we'll talk a little bit about what this means for today. Maybe some pieces. Okay, thanks. Okay. Hey, we're back and we're going to talk a little bit about implications for today. Um, you know, as we're using this as an Advent text and uh, as we are so confidence and um you know we're in this broken world today and so how how can this theme of promise and hope that comes through isaiah be be heard how does this reflect that well i mean i think that's a good question i mean you know we live in a time where promises are made to be broken and i think people have gotten pretty cynical about that i think also there is some challenge with our understanding of the word of god or the word of the lord um, because on the one hand, you have you have that idea that you know the King James Version is not just a translation of the inspired Bible. The King James Version is an inspired translation of the of the inspired Bible, and and so you have this absolutism of the Word of God that 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 i don't see reflected in that phrase the word of our god stands forever i think the point of that phrase is is to engender confidence and assurance 
you know, that what God promises, God is going to see through. You know, Paul says it, um, you know, he, um, he who began a good work in you will complete it, you know, and, and um, so you have different passages like that throughout Scripture. And I, I think that's the idea is, you know, is, you know, yeah, you have heard other words of promise um, and probably even other words of promise of redemption. This is one that you can hold on to, and you can drive a peg in the sand, and you can hold on to that one. You can tie your rope to it. You can, you know, you put it in the bank. Whatever, whatever analogy we want to use, because it's not going to, it's not going to disappear. And important, um, especially in today's world, right? I mean, when we're we're in the middle of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. We are in the middle of natural disaster, racial issues, but fierce political. Um, fight and uh, it. I think it's really easy for people to give up, and and I think it's really easy for people to say, "Why me?" And they're not, they're not really understanding um, this this broad call of God on our lives. This this that we are ch- all children of God. That God is with us mm. in this whole life ex- whole mess this <laughs> yeah. whole life experience that yeah. we have you know um i i should pull up a i don't know if i i can remember it off the top of my head it was a, a parker palmer quote where he's like um it's only when we th- the more faith we have the more we doubt the more mm. despair we have mm-hmm. but in the those are the things that bring us to the most hope and the most love i mean it's it's a reminder of that if we are um it's it's only because we love so much that then we feel so much grief mm-hmm. um and it's that strange play but that's our humanity i mean and who really wants to be that automaton who really wants to be in that world where we think we have everything completed um and and that's where Calvin comes in. That's not who God made us to be. Mm-hmm. Um, God made us to be free and to have free will. And in that process, that makes life sometimes really, really hard. I, you know, and I think, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll, we'll admit that. But it seems, I, I don't know, it seems to me that folks would much rather have it to where, you know, life is, life is kind of predictable. I mean, obviously... The grass is always greener, right? And mm-hmm. I don't know that anybody would truly choose this, but I think there is this idea that we carry, if only my life were more predictable, if only my life were easier, if only these things would be just simpler to deal with, not so complicated, then then, then life would be okay. Oh, I think that's <laughs> what, I think most of us live by that concept, right? If only, if only, if only. Right. And those are the people that, that seem to be in, in such desperate, I mean, when we stop and we take a deep breath and we acknowledge that um, God is great, God is good, God is in control, um, that God is, is the overarching architect, then all of a sudden we have a very a different way. And if we can live into that, then we understand that. And if we can live into that collectively, which I think is really an important part of this, right. that's when we can start to really live. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and I think we, we don't want, to, we don't want to do that. We don't want to change. We don't want to, we don't want to embrace others. We want to do it alone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it, I think it, to to pick up on that phrase, if only. I mean, it seems like um, 
the passage, you know, the message of redemption here, the word of the Lord, the mouth that the mouth of the Lord has spoken, is that we don't hang our hats on all the if onlys, because those are the things that wither and fade. But rather, we hang our we we hang our lives. We 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 anchor our lives, if you will, to uh, this promise that that God is going to fulfill. And I like to use the phrase "ultimately," if not immediately. You know, I think that's important when it comes to the idea of promise in the Bible. I, I I've known people who have who have stumbled over the promises of the Bible because you look at the world and you don't see. You don't see it. You don't see it. I always think of the soft, quiet voice of God, and we don't see it, and our secular world is so loud Mm -hmm. that we don't pay attention. And what don't we do? We don't do the things that we know we need to do. We don't involve ourselves in spiritual disciplines that help us see God's presence, right? We don't pray. We don't come to worship. (laughs) You know, we we just don't do that. We just don't. We just don't. Right. well, and, and, and as a result, uh, you know, to borrow another phrase from Paul, our lives are blown and tossed about, you know. Yes. And, and, and I think, again, the invitation is, you know, come anchor your life in, in God's unfailing love. When I think about, you know, when you talk about, like the disciples, they weren't afraid to die. And the reason they're not afraid to die is because they have lived into Christ's promise. Sure. Right? Sure. I mean, that is hard for almost all of us to recognize. But once you can finally, it allows you to finally live. We read that over and over in the scripture. Um, let go of all this stuff, and then you can finally live. And we, we've, we've talked, we know who those people are. We've seen them. We've seen their faith. And... Um, mm-hmm what a promise what a hope and I, I think this is a really great kind of at least introduction of, through advent to, mm-hmm. to sure. some of these promises well and and given the fact that it, it it calls us to wait for the coming of the Lord but it also calls us to wait for the return of the Lord you know we're constantly living in this space of promise I mean you know we'd like we'd like to be able to say, well, it's all fulfilled, and and we've you know we want to rush to Christmas, right? We want to rush to the redemption too, and um, uh, we want to we want to unwrap the the package of God's God's redemptive re- redemption right now. And there's a lot of it that can be unwrapped. I mean, we have we have many facets of God's redemptive love that's, that are already present in our lives, but um, the full uh, the full gift. Uh, remains and it's something we wait for and so there there you have the waiting of advent well absolutely and you know as you were talking about that to me that's that's what makes christmas so full is is this waiting process and living into this and um we as a society we've made this so secular and we jump so far away from from this um and I could get off on my soapbox for that for a long we, time. We, we all could, right? I mean, that, that'd be an interesting conversation, you yeah. know, and how many of us are on this space? I mean, I've had, grew up in churches where pastors say, we're not going to do any Christmas music until after Christmas, right? We, until after, um, and, and, and through Christmas tide, we're going to do Advent music. But then I've had the opposite discussion with, we are, we're trying to reach new people. The only thing they know about Christmas are Christmas carols. So we sing them anyway. Mm-hmm. For those of us, I think that have been in the church a long time, 
that makes us feel cheated because mm-hmm. our, our period of hope and our period of discernment has just been sliced away. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what you decide to do, I think this Advent text, though, gives you an opportunity to at least bring in that part of the, the hope, that, that part of the waiting to their attention, even if you decide to do Christmas carols in your, sure. in your service. Yeah. yeah, there is a promise that has been fulfilled, but it is still in the process of being fulfilled exactly. and won't be completely fulfilled until we're standing in the presence of Christ. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I was thinking. I was. I was thinking. Just today, I got. A, I saw a tweet from my daughter, um, who and um, she was saying, "If to all my friends who who are angry with me for watching Hallmark Christmas movies beginning October twenty fifth, <laughs> my boyfriend started is already listening to Christmas music. At, you know, in the end of September." <laughs> so. Oh goodness! <laughs> uh, yeah, I used to be one of those pastors who was like, "We're going to sing Advent carols." We're going, to, and then I realized, you know what? You know, I can loosen up a bit about that because folks, folks love Christmas carols, and and the Christmas carols also have the idea of promise in and, them as and well. And they do. And for many, it's looking ahead. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's the excitement of that season to come. And so, yeah. I I I get that. Um, as long as we continue to do some of those beloved Advent, you know, right. I, I still right. love those. Um, you know, I, jumping way ahead, but I was talking with somebody of, you know, what's your favorite time of year? And this one person says, Good Friday service, because it's the only time we still reserve where you could just break down in tears. Mm. And, and while Advent, we tend to kind of brush over it. Um, it's harder now just to break down in tears of Advent, but if we at least have a couple O Come, O Come Emmanuel's in there, mm-hmm. then at least there's that that moment for those of us that want to be there. Or for some folks, we do a Blue Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Blue Christmas is also this kind of, allows you to set back and be reflective kind of service sure. that allows you to live into that hope, maybe in a different way. Yeah, um, so sure. That could be helpful. Well, and you know... Texts like this one, as I mentioned, are familiar to us. Uh, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all right. flesh shall see it together, you know, because it's worked its way into our, our festivals of lessons and carols or in, in some way into our Christian cr- Christmas liturgy. And, you know, I, I, while I, I embrace that, you know, as a biblical person, I have, I have, sort of chafed at some of the texts that they use. I think this text works great personally because that's the theme of this it text. It does. However, but there are other texts <laughs> that that come in there that I think that that are pulled out of their context. Well, and I think it kind of on this as well. How many people think this is New Testament? Mm, right. I mean, I think really honestly if we Right. Casually go around. I think. I think we need to allow it to be owned as an Old Testament text. Right, because the first first thing you may think of is you know the voice crying out in the wilderness. Exactly. Oh, that's John that's the New Baptist. Testament. John the Baptist. No, no, it is some someone we don't know who. It may be the prophet Isaiah or, or Second Isaiah. It may be another proclaimer of good news, but it's someone who is who is. Um, proclaiming this promise of redemption to people who have been stripped from their home and in their lives. Yeah, exactly. And we didn't talk about Calvin there, but Calvin absolutely is able to keep this in his Old Testament context, Mm -hmm. as well as we talked about that cyclical process of moving forward. But I, I, guilty, 
how many of us read this as John the Baptist. Yeah. And, um, um, and Calvin warns against that. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good for him. I, good you know, Calvin. I think <laughs> I, I'll have to say, I, I, I'm, I, I like Calvin of the commentaries better than Calvin of the, of the institutes. A point with those commentaries too, that I think I, I haven't pointed out is at least a lot of these are taken off of lectures. So mm-hmm. they're actually notes written down by students. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. um, so maybe Calvin was preaching a little bit, huh? uh, preaching a little bit. And he's, yeah. And he's, he's walking through them and you see these kind of places where you can tell it might've been more of a lecture format than, than he does. And, and, in the commentaries, he's trying to make that we've talked a million times all fit together, but, um, you know, and in a very, very interesting character, certainly. Um, um, and and I, I don't want you all to think that I think he's perfect because he's very human. <laughs> yeah, sure. And someday we'll get into some of the places where you just makes he makes you scratch your head. Mm-hmm. Although I think he'd be the first to say I am a sinner with everyone else. Sure, sure, sure. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully our uh, our podcast today will help folks uh, reclaim this promise of redemption and comfort that. You know, it's our, the God of unfailing love promises to do this. And um, as I've often said to people, if, if this is something we can't, we can't depend on, then what can we really depend on? So exactly. I, I, think, I think this is a, this is a good foundation for our celebration of Advent as well as our faith walk. And, our and, faith walk. Yeah. This feels good to read today. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Especially in these days in of these days. pandemic and uncertainty and turmoil. Yeah. 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 Um, there, there is an anchor here for our I lives. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's a great text. All right. Thanks, Enjoy. Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.